hi everyone um, and welcome to Health Matters. This is a show on, uh, on Clubhouse that we're running their conversations with founders, clinicians, academics and investors operating at the intersection of health and technology. Um, and today we're focusing on policy. Um, my, my name is Julia. I'm a, I'm a general partner at Local Globe and Latitude and I focus on health tech investments. My co-host is Ekta, um, she's a venture investor and in NED at the Royal Free Hospital. And today uh, we're joined by Pro Professor Sir Chris Hamm, um, currently co-chair of the NHS Assembly, chair of Coventry and Warwickshire Health and Care Partnership, uh, and non-exec director at the Royal Free um, London Hospital. Uh, he's Emeritus Professor of Health Policy and Management at the University of Birmingham um, and at the King's Fund. Um, he's advised the World Bank, the WHO, governments of New Zealand, Sweden and Health Committee and the National Audit Office. It really um, is, is a pleasure to have you. He's been involved in health policy for over 40 years um, and we're just really, really lucky to have him on our pod, uh, podcast today. Um, I guess our first question, so jumping jumping straight in, um, successive governments have been discussing obviously fixing the health and uh, social care systems um, and recent announcements that have been made to, to cap the amount that is spent on social care for every adult to £86,000 over their lifetime. And, and to bring the health and social care systems together um, to be funded by an increase in, in national insurance contributions. Is, is this really the answer? And, and where do you think that the spend should be focused? Well, Julia, first of all, thanks to you and ACTA for um, inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Um, so on your question, it's a welcome announcement. It is a, a step forward. Successive governments have um, avoided finding a better way of funding and uh, delivering social care for, for many, many years. So I welcome the fact that this government now has come out with its proposals. Uh, my own view is, while welcome, they don't go far enough. And the issue immediately facing the social care system is not just the shortage of money, which is real and growing, but also the shortage of staff to deliver social care, whether that's in a residential care home setting or whether it's in people's own homes. We know that Brexit has had a significant impact and we've lost people who were working in the social care setting. We're concerned about the impact of requiring care staff to be double vaccinated by November. I think that will lead to further staff choosing to work elsewhere because of concerns uh, about the vaccine. Um, so social care really is in a state of crisis, in my view, at the moment. And we need some urgent action, both on the workforce front and in relation to funding, to be able to sustain the system until the new arrangements that you were describing actually come in, because they are proposals which will take a couple of years from now to become the reality um, in this country. And you know, two years is a long time. 
in the social care system for all the reasons I've mentioned. And Chris, on the on the um, staff point, some of this is about paying staff the right amount of money, um, given what they've been through for the last year and year and a half. And some of this is about working out what incentivizes staff to join. Um, and that often isn't just about and both of those are not often just about money. What What is it that you think that we should be doing to attract more staff to the NHS or and the social care system? Yeah, so absolutely. It's not just about money, but um, social care in particular tends to be lowly paid. And we know in the labour market now where there's a lot of competition and a great demand for staff of different kinds. And there's a risk in those circumstances that some social care staff will find it more attractive to go and work in other sectors. So the money we can't ignore but I accept your point, actor, that it's also about the working environment. It's about the way in which the work itself is, is valued and the way in which staff are supported in what are incredibly challenging and demanding roles. COVID has brought that home to all of us and especially the impact on the care sector, which has always been a Cinderella compared with the NHS and often if people don't have cause to use social care then they have very little knowledge of it understandably but we're all more familiar than we were and we know that there's a huge amount to do to create the working environments and the support and the training and the development opportunities to keep staff that we have in social care and to make it attractive for others to join. The NHS is different. You asked about um, the same question really in relation to staff working in the NHS. Of course, you've got a much wider range of people in whole uh, raft of different roles from very senior medics to experienced nurses to managers and many others besides. I think in the NHS, the key thing is to create the flexibility that people increasingly desire in their working careers and the NHS has got better at that, allowing, for example, nurses to choose their shifts and their rotors at times that suit them and their own personal and family circumstances and uh, recognising that staff have been through a terrible time in many respects in responding to the COVID uh, pandemic. And we need to provide a lot more support around staff health and well-being uh, to enable them to keep on doing the jobs they were trained to do and to make sure they don't leave, uh, take early retirement, which many have been talking about and considering. Because if we do that, then the existing difficult position around vacancies in the NHS will become even more challenging. And that fundamentally is an issue for local employers. Every hospital, every community service around the country needs to redouble its efforts to support staff in those sorts of ways. Thanks for that, Chris. And then and then sort of linking this back to the first uh, bit of the first question, which um, in relation to the additional investment that's being made, um, you and I both work in the system and um, we know that some bits of it work really well, but there's a lot of um, system change required so that um, so that as, a, as taxpayers, we get best value for money. Do you mind talking a little bit about what you think those system changes are and whether you think they're achievable within a sort of a reasonable time horizon? Yeah, well, the biggest change, and I've been arguing this for many, many years, is we've got the legacy in the NHS of how 
healthcare used to be delivered when the major causes of ill health in the community were were the big killers, the big premature killers. I'm talking about heart disease, stroke, cancers in particular, when the priority, quite rightly at that time, was to provide great acute hospital specialised care for people who'd had a heart attack or a stroke to give them access quickly to the best available care and to avoid premature deaths and to help them then to recover from that. Looking back, we've achieved a huge amount in delivering on those objectives. So we've seen steadily declining uh, premature deaths from those major causes. Uh, Cancer now is about survivorship, not first and foremost about death for most people who contract cancer. Uh, And that's to be celebrated because the available treatments have expanded hugely. Uh, There's much more confidence now in providing patients with the right kind of care based on uh, medical research, pharmaceutical innovation, and the skills that exist within the NHS. But the disease burden has shifted. And we need now to be reorienting how care is delivered to the challenges of today and tomorrow, which, leaving COVID on one side for a moment, those challenges are first and foremost about long-term medical conditions such as diabetes, heart failure, arthritis, depression and so on and often the challenge as people get older and frailer is the challenge of multi-morbidity when many patients present with two three or four of those long-term conditions and what we need is to reorient the NHS away from that prior focus on acute specialised care and to make sure we join up the contribution of different health and care staff working in their various specialties around each individual who will often be presenting with those complex health and care needs. So that is why I very much welcome the emphasis now on integrated care, uh, joining up what GPs and their teams are doing with what hospital teams are doing, uh, joining up what happens in different hospital specialties and making sure that when patients present, that all the expertise they need is available. There's good communication. The emphasis really putting it simply is on teamwork wherever the members of the teams happen to be located. And that's been the ambition now for five or six years. We've got to accelerate the move in that direction because sometimes the NHS can be very fast to innovate and adopt worthwhile changes, but often it could be quite slow. Uh, The analogy of turning around the oil tanker is sometimes applied to the NHS and there's a great deal of of truth uh, in that. So I think the direction that's being set is the right one, but we need to go further and faster. And the government's legislation in the uh, health and care bill wending its way through Parliament is intended to achieve just that. And I think we did see in the pandemic, didn't we, that 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 big um, tanker can be moved um, faster than anyone thought. So I think it's just about also capturing what they have shown that they can do in the last 18 months. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Amazing things happened in short order in the face of an unprecedented public health emergency. Um, And I've often said in the last few months, well, if we can do that in the NHS in wartime, Somehow we've got to find a way of doing it in peacetime, as hopefully the worst of COVID is now behind us. But we still need to find the ability to 
adapt um, and take on worthwhile innovations in care, be much more fleet of foot, be much more agile, uh, recognize the role of a whole range of different technologies which already are contributing to improved outcomes and improved patient experience. And a lot of that, in my view, is about freeing up staff, uh, the clinical staff delivering care supported by managers to do that because they're best placed to know what patients require. They're at the heart of the NHS. And if they've got the time and the space and the support to improve services, then wonderful things can happen. If, on the other hand, they're under the weight of too much bureaucracy and oversight and regulation, then we're squeezing out their ability to adapt quickly to the changing needs of the population. So the, the job of leaders of hospitals and other organisations is to create that kind of culture and environment that supports staff in that way and protects them from all the things like the bureaucracy and the regulation that gets in the way. It's so interesting, and, and thank you, thank you for sharing. Sharing. So, for those people who have just joined us, um, where this is Health Matters, um, and today we're talking to Sir Chris Ham, and we're focusing on policy. We've been um, speaking about the um, the changes in, in social care and the announcements that have been um, that have been happening over the last few weeks, um, and really talking about um, both how we how we. Um, both fund social care as well as the the NHS and the changes that are required within the system to meet, I guess, the the changing needs of 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 healthcare and the population. So moving from um, this acute care towards um, towards a focus on on each individual and and I guess what what Chris has talked about being the integrated care. Um, one one aspect about this which which we've been what you've uh, just been highlighting is obviously um previously the you shared the views on on public health highlighted by the pandemic uh and the way that the the nhs as well as local authorities uh, and the community sector organizations have to work together um do do you think that 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 that's a possibility um and what are the what are the opportunities as well as what are the challenges around actually delivering that in practice? Absolutely, it's possible. And we've talked for a long time, successive governments, about reorienting away from just treatment services to prevention. And surely the COVID pandemic has uh, reinforced the need to do precisely that. We know that people with pre-existing health conditions have been much more vulnerable, much more likely to get serious illness and sadly to die uh, from uh, COVID. So if we needed a reminder, we've had it uh, loud and clear uh, since February, March 2020. And what that means is the NHS playing its part in supporting people to live healthy lives, but looking well beyond the NHS. We need to focus on the wider determinants of people's health and well-being because those are the causes of the causes of ill health, uh, whether people have a job, uh, whether they live in safe housing, whether they have social networks, friends and neighbours, 
um, whether they have an adequate income. Uh, we know that poverty is still a major issue in our society. And we know that you know, people who work in health and care are also people who access the support that food banks uh, provide these days. And that's quite shocking in many respects, isn't it? So if we want to do these things, then we have to make a commitment not just to integrated care, but to the development of what I would call population health systems, which bring together the NHS with local authorities and their public health teams, but also the other services that they deliver, like leisure and recreation services, because supporting people to exercise more is vitally important too. So there's a bold vision here, which I believe lies behind some of the current changes, but old habits die hard. You know, there's always the legacy effect of the investments that have been made over many, many years, primarily in those treatment sickness services. And we need them, don't get me wrong. But actually, over time, we need to put the balance of investment more into stopping people becoming ill in the first place. The NHS, as I say, has a key role in that, but it goes well beyond the NHS. Um, so that moves um, nicely on to my next question, Chris, which um, um, you mentioned giving individuals the tools and supporting them to look after their own health and um, to play a bigger part in improving their own health. Um, where do you see that that patient role sits or the individual role sits and how do you think technology can play a part in this? So something I've written about and I feel passionate about and I keep on arguing for this is that we've created within the health and care system um, an unhealthy dependency relationship between patients and clients in social care and those delivering care to them. Uh, we've relied too much on highly trained professionals to take responsibility. We've created a sense that the doctor or the nurse knows best. There's a pill for every ill. And we haven't given enough attention to the role each of us plays in our health and well-being and in the way in which we access health and care services. And the pandemic, again, has been, uh, I think, a timely reminder. For instance, if you look at the evidence, then obviously the vaccination programme has made a huge positive difference. But on its own, it wouldn't have enabled us to make as much progress as we have without public compliance with all the guidance on behaviour and behaviour change. And obviously here I'm talking about social distancing, wearing face masks, hand washing and the contribution that society has made uh, through behaviour change to moderating the impact of the pandemic. So extrapolating from that, as we move back into peacetime, how can we, picking up my earlier example, people with diabetes or people with other long-term conditions, how do we support them through things like the expert patient programme, give them the information so that they can make the right decisions with support from health and care professionals, uh, providing them with access to information sources through the internet or through self-help groups, providing peer support and we know peer support already plays a vital role so somebody who's been through the experience of uh, a, a medical condition 
can be just as valuable in many ways as a doctor or a nurse in supporting other people with that condition because it's their lived experience that is vitally important. And then to your question, there's a way in which technology, for example, um, apps can be used more and more to support that shared responsibility for health and well-being. And I'm confident that if we can grasp this nettle, we can ensure the NHS is sustainable for the future. It's what, uh, 20 years ago now, actually, Derek Wanless, in the report that was commissioned by uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown uh, for the then Labour government, he described it as the fully engaged scenario. What he meant by that was fully engaging individuals, citizens, people and communities in sharing with those who are the expert professionals responsibility for health and well-being. And there are lots of different ways of doing that. And technology certainly has a part to play. I, I, I fully agree. And I guess um, one of the things, and I'd love your feedback uh, on this, but we we have, I guess, have seen both um how important uh, it is, but also how challenging it can be to get the communication right. Uh, even when, for example, talking about vaccination programs, but but even um, communicating how medication should be taken or the role of engaging in, in different types of activities or different services. And that's why I guess one of our fundamental pieces is that, you know, healthcare is the healthcare industry is actually a communication industry. Um, and it, if I just roll back to, to something that you, you said earlier, I, I think um, I, I do think this is something that you, you mentioned as well. But uh, just wondering how how you think about yeah the role of of how we communicate with different types of individuals to get the right messaging across. Because I think in this instance, uh, I actually think that technology can can play an, an even an even more important role because it's something that you know tech companies have have actually figured out um, in a in a very in, in a very I guess systematic way what kind of messages are actually appeal to and, and get the right kind of um, response from different types of individuals. Um, yeah, any thoughts about that? Yeah, lots of thoughts. <laughs> so it's not me I go on for too long here, Julia. So it is a communication industry. I'd also say it's a relationship industry because healthcare is uh, high tech at one level. It's also high touch. When we're ill, we want somebody we can develop um, a trusting relationship with, whoever that might be, uh, who can work with us to uh, address the particular problems that we uh, present with. And more and more, if it's about relationships, and I was in a discussion with the NHS Assembly earlier on today, where we were focusing on co-production of uh, health and care between uh, people themselves and the health and care providers with the expertise to support them. And it needs to be a partnership, as far as possible, an equal partnership where each of us brings our own lived experience and we can match that with what the professionals can help us with. On the communication point, though, um, I, I agree. Um, I think there has to be a way of tailoring the communication, tailoring the messages to different audiences. 
um, that was another big lesson that came out from the pandemic. If we were trying to increase vaccine uptake, we had to be clear which channels to use with uh, different uh, communities, different audiences, and which messages to use, and indeed, which messengers to use. And I know there was some really good work done locally by public health teams on that, because in a sense, they are the anthropologists in their community. Uh, They're much better placed to understand how you reach those different communities, who you draw on, community leaders, faith leaders, and so on, how you get to younger audiences where there may be more vaccine hesitancy and vaccine resistance and the channels that you use, you know, using uh, WhatsApp and Facebook and all kinds of different channels, depending on those audiences. So yeah, in three minutes there, I've just summarized kind of a whole tranche of work and learning that we need to capitalize on now, not just around vaccinations and uh, COVID-19, but in relation to all other areas of care. I mean, I think it's it's so it's so phenomenal that we've I mean we've had this experience and and despite obviously everything that everyone has been through, the learnings have been phenomenal. And I think it's it's great now that we that we have taken those learnings and are applying them a, across uh, across the piece. Really, um, we we have another couple of of questions, but if anyone in the audience would like to to um, to ask something, please uh, feel free to put your your hand up. It will come to you shortly. Um, but but I guess one of the things that we've that we've had as a consistent theme um, on on the on the podcast has been that uh, listeners will have tried to or have had experiences with working with with different uh, NHS bodies. Um, And I guess in your experience, what do you think is the most efficient way of working with the NHS? Um, Yeah. So um, I know it can be frustrating (laughs) to try and work with the NHS if you have got uh, a technology or an offer to make a new product, a new service, and you are trying to find the right entry points because the organization of the NHS is mind bogglingly complex. And finding the right people to talk to and the right way in is never straightforward because the answer will rarely be the same in every area of the country because the key movers and shakers the key decision makers will often sit in different organizations and you know you need to be an anthropologist yourself to understand who those people are and how best to approach them i would also say i'm aware from my work over many years that the nhs can be a difficult partner Uh, to do business with. Uh, There is sometimes, unfortunately, uh, a lot of suspicion within the NHS at private companies of whatever kind. I've got most experience of working with pharmaceutical companies, but I suspect this is not confined to that sector. There's a suspicion in some parts of the NHS that these commercial organisations are out for profit and the NHS just has to be very careful in who it does business with and on what terms. Sometimes that suspicion is reinforced by the NHS hierarchy, which uh, can make it difficult for these relationships to be formed. So that is a long way of saying, go into this with your eyes open. 
start from the mind-boggling complexity, find a friendly anthropologist who can help you work out who is uh, who's pulling the strings, who's controlling budgets, who are the key people to talk to. It could well be within a big hospital, but it might be in the community or mental health services. And when you've got that basic knowledge, I think the offer has to be very much about the service and the patient experience and the patient outcomes that will uh, benefit from a partnership. And I think that is what always motivates people in the NHS, whether they're in clinical roles or in managerial roles. It's the prospect of improving patient care, seeing health outcomes for the population uh, get better as a result. And if that can be demonstrated, then the doors that might seem to be closed will begin to open up. But the other thing I'd say is it takes time. Uh, this is, again, where the relationships come in. It's about building understanding, building trust, building confidence, uh, getting to know those key people and being patient. And the NHS, it can be slow moving, hence the frustration. But if you're persistent and you're willing to see it through, then good things can happen. I think I totally agree with that, Chris. And um, I mean, the revenue opportunities for a small business are obviously massive, given the size and scale of the NHS. And whilst um, trusts are individual decision making um, bodies, I think a lot of work is being done to be able to take learnings from trust as trust. And in the sorts of businesses that Julie and I have come across, NHSX is helping out um, quite significantly. However, I see the biggest problem being um, the lack of experience within the NHS to assess whether some of these commercial entities are ones that they can work with and understand what they need to do to due diligence them. Um, and I think um, hopefully one of the legacies I leave with working with the NHS is to help people become a little bit more um, commercially minded when it comes to that sort of analysis and decision making. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, um, actor. And I mean, maybe one of the hopes here is that the 40 or so integrated care systems that now exist and will become statutory entities from April 2022 will, to some degree, help to simplify where those entry points are. So rather than being faced with 200 NHS trusts each with their own boards of directors and their decision-making, if it's possible to go to one organisation called an integrated care system and have the conversation at that level, that might open doors within that geography and be a more sensible way of doing business. The only caveat I would enter there is that those systems are at different stages in their maturity um, at the moment, and they're very preoccupied with a whole bunch of issues to do with appointing their leaders and their governments and getting all the arrangements in place for April next year. They may be distracted while that is going on from other conversations, such as the ones that we're talking about. That makes perfect sense. But, but even so, even an improvement in having 200 trusts to go to, to having 40, even if that reward will take a, a little bit of time to work itself out, I think will be will be a yeah, real welcome um, welcome change to, to some of some of the potential partners. I think also another thing that we've seen with um, with some of the companies that we've worked with, for example, have done uh, a proof of concept with with one trust and um, have which is, which may have yielded 
one set of results um, and and that trust decides to go forward with a commercial arrangement with that company other trusts um, then ask to do to go through a similar process um, and I think what what would be really really helpful and I think this is this is starting to work itself through but um, but really to see that trusts are trusting the 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 work that is done or the the, the results that have been undertaken by by another trust, um, so that there it doesn't have to be such a such an, a very lengthy uh, sales process as well. Yeah, and I'd add to that, Julia, and say um, that at one level, the NHS is a massive organisation with all the complexity I've been talking about. At another level, it's a village. Yeah, uh, people know each other at different ends of the country because there are strong professional networks that bind people together and word of mouth is incredibly uh, important and word spreads quickly between different leaders or between different clinical groupings because those clinical networks are vitally important too. So uh, I think what you say is absolutely right. If, if a company wants to do business with the NHS and is able to do so, uh, through one organisation um, embracing that idea and engaging in partnership, then surprise, surprise, word will spread very quickly and that will open up other doors too. Exactly. Um, anyone listening in, are there any questions? I know that there are a couple of people who are new to Clubhouse, so welcome, and uh, especially to you if this is the first time you're logging on. Um if there are any questions, don't don't be shy. Um, and if if not, Akta, do you want to to say some final thoughts? Um, as as ever, Chris, um, you've been completely illuminating, and thank you so much for um, attending. I think um, um, I feel like we're in a position um, of change at the NHS where the pandemic has given us an opportunity to make some significant changes in terms of how the system works, how open minded the NHS is and the kind of partners it works with. And I think I would encourage anyone with some clever ideas um, for the NHS to, um, as, as you said, Chris, to persist and um, work with what is a fantastic partner. Yeah, no, I, I would too. I mean, the NHS um, has been through a torrid time, partly through the pandemic, but frankly, you know, the last uh, few weeks over the summer, it's been the toughest summer, I would say, in the history of the NHS with uh, massive demand from patients to see their GPs and concerns they can't get to see their GPs, massive pressure at the front door of hospitals when often then patients turn up at A&E because that's the part of the NHS where the lights are on 24-7 and hospitals themselves struggling to cope with a mix of COVID patients and non-COVID patients. So times are tough out there and it means you know the focus of the NHS quite rightly at the moment is on dealing with that demand that's being presented and looking ahead I have to say with some trepidation because we're in the autumn expectation is that winter will not be easy this year we heard the Prime Minister speak a couple of days ago about the winter plan on Covid and setting out the emphasis there on on the vaccination programme and extending it to young age groups and to the booster programme um, as well. 
But the NHS is about much more than COVID. And we're increasingly trying to deal with that backlog of people on waiting lists and waiting times. We're trying to improve our mental health services. We're trying to get easier access into general practice. Uh, I tend to say at the moment, wherever I look, I can see fires burning. This is not a pleasant prospect uh, because the NHS is simply in an unprecedented position. And I don't think that position is going to get much easier for the staff working in the NHS for the foreseeable future. So we have to live with that reality. And it's back to where we started, really, is how we value and support our staff in those circumstances, because without them, then we're all that much the poorer. I I agree fully and, and thank you. Thank you so much um, for for joining us uh, today and, and ACTA as, as well. I think it's been uh, an amazing conversation. I have learned so much and I agree completely with, with all the thoughts about, you know, ultimately this really is a, a communication and a relationship industry. And, and it really comes back to, as you said, um, valuing valuing our staff and providing the environment in which um, individuals are able to receive um, the care that 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 they need and and moving from this notion of acute care to to really an individualized care um, and and obviously like you said moving beyond beyond COVID and 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 towards um, towards the future. I um yeah thank you. I think it's been a brilliant brilliant show. Um, and thank you to everyone who has uh, tuned in. Um, we will be making the show available on Spotify as well. Um, but I guess for now, that's that's us. Well, thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.